We here at Arshingaya like to take in feedback and try to respond accordingly, so we're trying a new visual setup. Uh, obviously, you gave that feedback about a month ago from your perspective, but we've also here at Arshingaya been trying to, uh, excuse me, the low runner, trying to upload videos way in advance for various reasons, which my streamers are aware of. So, hopefully this is better. If not, I hate you. Now, the gentleman who played the guest star in this episode is named Andy Dick. This is funny because this keeps coming up, the idea of guest stars. And it will come up uh, after this point, too. But as usual, amazing guest stars sell an episode. Andy Dick's uh, overall chemistry and charisma with Robert Picardo is amazing. The two of them completely sell their lines and roles. Honestly, if it weren't for their wonderful back and forth, I think this overall episode would have kind of fallen on its face. It's also kind of funny because this is one of the few times Trek has done comedy properly, in my opinion. Partially by not telling jokes so much as showing humorous circumstances, but also because of a general witty tone and humorous dialogue. I mention this because it's harder to write humor than you'd think. It's actually one of the hardest things to write by most writers' opinions, myself included. A lot of the, like like well over ten pieces of the witty repartee between uh, the Mark One and the Mark Two were was actually done by Picardo and uh, and Andy Dick. They actually improved a lot of that stuff and inserted a lot of that stuff into their uh, into their dialogue. So that kind of makes a degree of sense. <clears throat> now this episode has a very odd structure. It's a three piece episode. First of all. It's a, a way to connect Voyager, arguably for the first time, to the rest of Star Trek. Now, I know that sounds weird, but if you think about it, Voyager has, up until this point, been basically 100% disconnected from the rest of Star Trek. There are a few moments, arguably two, where that is not true. And I'm not counting the intro. Uh, so I guess we'll go, we'll go ahead and be technical and say three times this connects to the rest of Trek. The first episode, they stop off of DS9, go off to the Maquis, and BAM! Delta Quadrant. Okay, so that's the connection. The second episode is regarding the Ferengi. From that TNG episode, uh, the blah, 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 blah. What is the name of that episode? It's not even a bad episode, it's just, although it's kind of an eh episode. Whatever, anyways, that episode. And then, there's the third episode, which is really debatable. Uh... Eye of the Needle, I believe, where they contact the Romulan in the past through the wormhole and actually teleport him through. Pretty good, uh, pretty good connections, all three of those. But ultimately, you, you can see why I'm calling this a technical collection. It's not quite a technical, because I'm not trying to be like... <laughs> I'm only trying to do this for the sake of completion to really make my point, which is the fact that Voyager's been disconnected from most of Star Trek. In this episode, we go back, we see a brand new ship, a battleship, for that matter, which has been produced because... Of course it has. Remember, we're in the middle of a war at this point in time. And a war that will not be resolved for, I think, another year and about ten episodes, something like that. So, because we're, we're nearing the end of DS9. This is season six, I want to say, of DS9. Pretty sure, pretty sure. Because Equinox was the end. Equinox is hit when the end. So that would have been season. So yeah, this is season six of DS9. <laughs> I should have looked that up first. And... Yeah, Dominion War is going full tilt. They even name drop the Dominion. I'll talk about that later. And we actually get to see the Mark II, which actually makes a lot of sense, the idea that the Mark I would have been moved on from. In actual fact, that's actually also referenced in DS9. There's a lot of little continuity nods in this episode, too, overall, which I'll talk about a few of those as we go. 
So this actually, for the first time, really connects Voyager to the rest of the, the you know the rest of Star Trek, and I think was a really great move for one huge, huge reason. This began the new subplot of Voyager. This episode did right here. Now I love this episode. I I enjoyed every moment of this episode, even the bits that were just kind of like, eh? I was still okay with. Uh, I guess there's two scenes I don't like, but whatever. The idea here is. Up until now, the subplot of Voyager has been, will they get home? Now, you might be like, well, that's the main plot of Voyager. No. The main plot of Voyager is, they're stuck here. They're in the Delta Quadrant. That's the main plot of Voyager. The subplot is, will they get home? And there have been many episodes of the, will they get home plot. In fact, there was one in, like, the second episode, or the second or third, I forget which, of the entire season, which I remember facepalming about when we were talking about that forever ago. This is the new subplot connecting with home. Now, I say it so generically, because that is a rather bland term to put it, because it is that way. Sometimes we'll be communicating with them. Sometimes we'll be sharing information. Sometimes we'll even be getting orders from them. Sometimes there will be stuff that happened back home that affects us in Voyager, and vice versa. But for the first time, Voyager is actually linked with Star Trek as a whole. This is, in my opinion, one of the most important things they could have done for Voyager. And honestly, I'm amazed it took them until season freaking four to do this. This does not seem like an outlandish idea to me. Now, you don't want to do this immediately. That would deflate the point of being lost and alone in, in the Delta Quadrant. But you do want to do this. Ap- I, I would say like season three probably would have been a, the best time, if, in my p- opinion, to really start this new era of Voyager. We have now linked up with home. They know we're here. We know they know we're here. We, are a f- we have officially communicated. It's bare bones. It's brief. But the knowledge is out there, and now we can work forward from that. They know to start trying to reach us, and we're not going to stop trying to reach them. And that's going to be an undercurrent for a lot of episodes in, in the future. And and, op- and, as, and as in all these episodes, as we'll see, is a huge door open for so many new, new plots that you can do that you couldn't do before because there was no way to connect home without them actually going home with the way they'd established it. And them going home, well, we'll talk about that in about a season and a half. Moving on. Uh, so this, like I said, this episode has a bit of an odd structure. It connects to home, which I've already talked about. It's uh, it's a comedy act, and yet it also has some serious repercussions and impacts with regards to the setting overall. One of the things that I wish had been followed up on, and I thought would be when Voyager was coming out, it never was, was the idea that they talked to a Mark One hologram who is clearly way more advanced than any... You know, of the AMHs have ever been. I remind you that after this, we find out the Mark Ones are relegated to dilithium mining or whatever mining. It doesn't matter. They're relegated to mining duty because it seemed more efficient slash humane than shutting them off. I'm really not sure of the logic. We'll talk about that later. But suffice it to say, they talk with a clearly fairly intelligent, fairly advanced uh, EMH who managed to engender changes in another EMH, the Mark II, who was brand new, I might add, and also has a desperate desire to get back to his crew, a loyalty to that, right? Why is it exactly that that had no impact on anything ever? You know, that's the kind of thing that I would feel there would be some setting ripples to, and should have been followed up on, in my opinion. You could argue it is followed up on, but it really isn't, because this point is basically abandoned uh, when we get there. But regardless, I'm going to get ahead of myself. Um, a couple of other nice touches. They use the DS9 uniforms uh, for the Prometheus crew and for the Starfleet personnel who beam over and have no lines. Nice little touch, because they were up to the new uniforms at this point in time. 
They also show, they show on the map where the ship is, and I don't know if this was done deliberately, but they are actually going to the Beta Quadrant. Now, they say the Alpha Quadrant in the script, but that's, that's acceptable, and I'm going to explain why. Too often, the, the, the main area of Star Trek is referred to as the Alpha Quadrant. This is actually not accurate. Um, Earth is like right here, and the Beta Quadrant's right here, and the Alpha Quadrant's right here. This is from my perspective. So I guess from your perspective, Alpha Quadrant's right here, Beta Quadrant's right here, right? Federation is like this. It completely bypasses both of them, and all the known space, Klingons, Romulans, all this, is all over the Alpha and Beta Quadrants. The two quadrants are effectively home together. Most people just say Alpha Quadrant. Now, this is not nitpicking. This makes sense. Most people refer to... Um, America, I say most people refer to anything in this area as America rather than just the United States of America or Canada or Mexico or whatever else because it's easier to just say the one word rather than to be specific. You only have to be specific if there's a reason to be specific, right? So I'm okay with them just calling it the Alpha Quadrant. The subtle touch here is that they're actually going to the Beta Quadrant, in fact, the Northeast Quadrant of the Beta Quadrant. Why is that significant? That's where Romulan space is. It's a tiny little touch that you wouldn't even notice unless you actually knew the geography of, of Star Trek's thing, which I do because I'm a loser. Um, <laughs> but I like that. I like the fact that they're actually heading in the direction of Romulus. But now it's vague, but still, I have to believe that that was done on purpose, especially given how close they were to Romulan space. I also really like uh, a few other touches, but I'll, I'll, I think I'll go over those as we go. Two things they did follow up with this, uh, I just feel like sharing. One is the Herogen. We'll talk more about them later. The other is Barkley, which was a great idea. And I'll talk about why that is later. I just wanted to mention that the ideas for both of those plot threads were laid here. This is one of the very few instances of Voyager doing, uh, laying down, uh, shoot, I, I can't remember the, my own term for it. It's when they lay down plot threads without any intent to follow up on them. It's a style of writing that Babylon 5 did all over the place, that Deep Space Nine did, uh, that they did with Star Trek II. Which uh, was this is an episode that recently went live, so you know it's it's the kind of thing where you lay a plot thread down for someone to follow up on it, and then someone else could do something with it because you've already laid the foundation for a plot thread. So that was followed up. This episode li led to the Barkley subplot, which is a part of the you know connecting with home subplot, and the Herosians, which is both good stuff in their own ways. But I digress. So let's talk about the episode proper. All right, I want you to imagine that Balan is like right here. Okay. <coughs> okay, there we go. Got that out of my system. I don't like this because, and Voyager will be doing this, unfortunately, for the entire rest of its run. Seven's progression through her character arc of discovering who she is. I'm not going to say becoming more human because that isn't her character arc. I made that clear. Discovering who she is will do this. It will have progress and then it will lose progress. And it will have progress and it will lose progress. Um, the actress, whose name I just literally just forgot off the top of my head. Uh, expressed her own complaints about that fact throughout the series. It's like, some episodes she'd feel like, you know, her character was learning something and she was learning to do certain niceties and so she'd change a little nuance in how she approaches her lines, and then the next episode it's like, oh, and by the way, now we're back to this point, and she felt it was lurching, to use her own words, and I agree. But this one felt like kind of the thing. This like felt like the whole Bolana, I'm a passive-aggressive twit uh, subplot. Really should have happened, like, five, six maybe even eight episodes before now, Bolana getting pissed off at Seven for not, for, for being rude is A, hilariously hypocritical, um, B, 
something that should have happened a while ago since we've already established at this point in time that she's understood and begun to, to learn social niceties and indeed the words like thank you and you're welcome. They would specifically mentioned that in this episode and yet there was a whole episode that had a big point, a big major character moment of her learning what you're welcome and thank you meant. Remember that? I don't remember the name of the episode, but it's the one with the damn uh, refugees who were, you know, fleeing from the Borg, and she helps them, you know, that episode. What? What was that episode? Uh, Day of Honor, I believe, was the name of that episode. And it just felt weird. And and one thing, however, one thing, one thing I do like about this scene, and this is why I don't put it in as a full net negative, is Chakotay. Right at the beginning, Chakotay just smacks her down and says, you're a senior officer, act like it. That is exactly right, if you forgive me for being blunt. This is not high school. This is not college. This is not grade school. Okay, stop coming to me, the teacher, with your problems with some other kid. You are an adult, and you're an officer. You're the teacher now. Act like it. Seven has an interesting approach in this episode, because there is one good character thing they did for Seven in this episode, and I like it because it's never mentioned. It's never actually explained or elaborated on. Seven is focused on a goal. Keep in mind, we learn later, and it makes sense, that Seven has no desire to get to Earth. Earth means nothing to her. Literally nothing. Going to Earth is like going to Tau City 5, or Vulcan, or... I don't know, the Imperium of Man's home planet, whose name I can't think of off the top of my head. It doesn't matter. It's, It's a planet. It's a planet. It means nothing to her. So why has she been spending so much of her time and so much of her energy focused on helping the Voyager crew to get home? Because it's a goal. Remember, and that's I like, at this point in time in character, Seven's character development, she has not really started thinking about her yet. What are her wants? What are her goals? What are her ambitions? Those haven't started to, fl- to, to flourish, let alone to grow at all within her yet. So instead, she's doing something that she knows that is comfortable to her, which is task-oriented work. She has a goal, and it is the goal of the crew, and therefore it is a goal she cares about because it's a goal, and she is going to work towards it. So she dedicates herself to getting a hold of this Herogen Array. We know it wasn't actually a Herogen Array. It's some. It's one the Herogen used, but whatever. Get a hold of this array. Use it to contact, you know, blah, blah, blah. Work, work, work. I like that. Very much seven. Now, uh, uh, okay, I also like their willingness to use the doctor. Now, I've heard some people complain about this, and with good reason. Um, This will actually come up again later in a really amazing episode whose name I don't know because I'm terrible. Um, It's the one where the doctor goes back to Earth. It's quite a ways from now. Um, But I really like their willingness to use the doctor because the gravity of it is is hinted at and the subtlety of the dialogue this lisa clink did the telepay for this episode by the way which i only mentioned because lisa clink has gotten a lot of flack for some of the episodes she's done in voyager and admittedly that's kind of deserved but she does really good character interactions when she, when she's got something to work with and there's this wonderful subtle thing where everyone is is clearly we we're about to lose our doctor okay now, I know you probably don't understand what that means, so let me explain. We are about to lose the only medical professional we have on the entire ship. I've talked before about how Star Trek's medical is medical technology is freaking amazing, and it would be amazing if it was in real life. The problem is it is also very, very prone to failure because it has very few uh, redundancy points, basically. 
In the case of Voyager, they have no one on board who is trained medically. The closest they have is Tom Paris, and that's just because he is enough of an everyman to know a little bit about everything. He is barely a nurse. I wouldn't even call him a nurse to use real-life medical equivalents. I would call him me. His knowledge of medical science is about the same as mine is in real life, which I would not be able to use to actually diagnose or help people in real situations. If they get something serious happening with them medically, they are screwed. And yet they're still willing to do this. I don't think that's out of character. I don't think that's bad writing. I think it shows they have a they have a ticking clock. They've got like what is it, forty minutes or something? Forty five minutes, I think it was right at the beginning. We've got forty five minutes to contact a ship. Go, go, yes, doctor, please go here. Yes, transfer, go. I mean, at every point in time, that desperation, that desperate, hopeful need to do this, to act on this lest this opportunity be lost forever is palpable it's also interesting because if you think about it it's very likely to the point of i'd say absolute that the tall shiar would have gotten a hold of the prometheus if not for voyager's actions i don't know what that would have done to the dominion war again this is season six but i can see that uh, changing a few things behind the scenes especially since at this point in time the tall shiar if you remember don't have a military per se <laughs> I mean, they do, but not like they used to. Not after... <clears throat> not wishing to spoil DS9, but yeah. So, sorry about that. Uh, moving on. The point is, not only do they have this palpable tension of, we have to do this now, we know... It, it, we, they know how much of a sacrifice they're willing to make. They know how much of a risk they're making. They are gambling it all, and they know it. And I like that. And, and this is great, they don't come out and say, you know, we're not going to send you if you say no. But it is made clear that they are asking the doctor's permission. Janeway specifically asks, I forget how she phrases it, but it's perfect. It's not like, I will not order you to do this. I will not make you do this. You know, But will you do this? Will you do this, please? And the doctor says, yes. I like that because they don't force him to. They're in a hurry. So they have to move now. But they do not force the doctor into this. They ask him, and I really like that. So, <laughs> I love how you, Voyager, after all they've gone through, after everything that's happened, finally, finally, finally gets contact with someone in the Beta Quadrant. And it's a ship that's been taken over by Romulans. This is an interesting uh, circumstance because, well, I'll get to that in just a moment. Let me talk about one other thing. I've been asked to comment. I've actually been asked to comment on Voyager stuff. This is great. If you guys have any thoughts, you know, things you want me to comment on in future episodes, I'm totally willing. I love feedback from my viewers. I really do. I'm so lonely. Um, in all honesty, I like having feedback, especially from this, because I feel like my Voyager audience is a much smaller audience than the rest of mine. It's, it's very much a niche of a niche. And uh, so I, feel, I like the more personal contact I have with you guys. So if you're watching this, hey, what's up? My name's Arsh, sort of, the lore runner. Um... But uh, the Prometheus, I was asked to comment on the Prometheus. Now, for those of you who have played Star Trek Online, the Prometheus is actually a ship you can get. In fact, there's a couple of vector assault ships you can get in Star Trek Online. And the ship is unqu unequivocally better, but that's because in a game, what you're doing is making it so that you still have all the weapons you have equipped on your ship, and then you add more weapons to you. I mean, there's a few drawbacks, but basically it increases your overall output of firepower. Makes sense. In 
you know, real life, aka in setting, how does that make sense? Well, it doesn't, because the, the flat reality is there's only two ways to think about the, the ad advantages of the Prometheus. Now, I do think the Prometheus does have advantages. Uh, it is an experimental thing. It's the kind of thing Starfleet would make when pressed by the Dominion and, uh, you know, all the other things that are happening at this point in time. I believe Insurrection was around this point in time as well. I'm not sure. I'd have to look up the numbers. Maybe Insurrection was later. No, Insurrection had to be later, because Insurrection was after Voyager, wasn't it? And first contact was like about a year ago. Whatever. Wow, that was a big gap between first contact and insurrection. Anyways, so here's the thing. One ship can uh, alpha strike pretty... I, I should explain my terms. Alpha strike is, is fire all. Everything you've got, fire in one focus. You don't want to do that all the time because that will burn out your arrays, burn out your energy, burn out your heat. That will generate a ridiculous amount of backlash, which they acknowledge occasionally on Star Trek. You know, It's the kind of thing that's damaging to do. You only do it when you really need to. But if you're doing an alpha strike... Any given ship can probably do an alpha strike depending on configuration. Some can't. A Galaxy class, for example, cannot do an alpha strike because they literally cannot aim all the weapons in the same direction at the same time. They have too many weapons which are all over the place, right? However, a lot of more battle-oriented ships, cough, cough, defiant, cough, cough, can do alpha strikes uh, as a matter of course. It's actually their normal functioning capacity. But... The, the advantage of a Prometheus ship is it's effectively doing an alpha strike when it splits up. The difference is by splitting it up, you, you are unable to do it more, basically. It's, it's a different take on the Defiance thing. See, the Defiant is guns with an engine attached. The Prometheus is an actual ship, which when spread out its energy supplies, I, there's a really strong impression that there's three cores in the ship. I forget the actual technical manuals. I have to look. But the idea is three cores, three energy sources, three capacities to fire about a third of the weapons all the time. Therefore, you're able to basically alpha strike constantly, which is a huge advantage. You know, being able to constantly be a fire all is a huge uh, is a huge tactical advantage. The second advantage is coordination. If I'm alpha striking, obviously I can hit this one spot. But if all three of us are, we could surround you. We could hit you from this end and from its zenith. So the point where your shields are getting hit with as much uh, with equal amount of energy at the exact opposite points, which is going to throw off your polarity. You, we could do that if your shields are down and hit multiple different targets at the same time in order to be very efficient about how we dice you apart. In other words, the coordination of being able to do three attacks arguably si uh, simultaneously, is something that is very valuable as opposed to most ships which can't really do that, especially if they're already in alpha strike capacity, which is also something they can't do for long. So overall, while the Prometheus is not a huge step up, I could see how it could, at least theoretically, be a tactical advantage for any ship uh, in that circumstance, which is why the Prometheus was able to drive away several of the Derodex-class warbirds, for example. That and the fact that they probably were unwilling to stay and fight for the Prometheus, given the fact that there were other Starfleet vessels already showing up, including a Defiant class, if you saw. But anyways, uh, let's, so that's, so that's my thoughts on the Prometheus. It's a good ship in STO, by the way. If you can get it, uh, I think you have to actually buy it with, with real money or with saved up Zenny, but either way, it, it's an awesome ship. Pax has one of those. Um, let's talk about the Kobayashi Maru. This is funny because, you know, Wrath of Khan video just went live. The Kobayashi Maru, in this case, is you have a ship which you don't have any kind of authorization or tactical control over. You don't have the ability to say, computer, recognize my authority and give me control of the ship, because it's not your ship. The ship barely even recognizes you. And even if it, even though he has a crew member, that crew member is an EMH. Remember, most EMHs don't actually have any access to their ship because they're just a tool, right? <clears throat> that, that's that point earlier about EMH rights that I'll, I swear I'll get to eventually. But uh, 
27 Romulans on a ship you don't have control of versus two holograms. Effectively one hologram, but, you know, whatever. That is, that is in many ways a Kobayashi Maru. That is a no-win scenario. However, what really defines the Doctor? What makes him special? What makes him unique? Don't answer Robert Picardo, because that's a good answer, but that's not what I mean. I mean the character. What really makes him him versus any other EMH who can or has adapted, like the one in Equinox? Well, I just gave it away in my answer. Adaptability. The one thing that has always defined our The Doctor is his ability to adapt on the fly to new stimuli, new circumstances, new situations. That is literally the culmination point of his character arc for the last four years. I love how he does improvisation constantly and on the fly and really does some amazing stuff with it. Probably my favorite scene is when the Romulan brings in a sick Romulan. He looks around, looks around, and in like three seconds, which may not sound like a lot, but three seconds is really impressive. In three seconds, he makes up his mind and bam, yep, EMH online, I came in in response to you. And he's completely smooth, civil, here, let me look at this. Would you like to oversee the, okay, I will contact you when you're gone, blah, blah, blah. Very good improvisation. What he does with regards to, you know, getting the Mark II to listen. What he does with regards to uh, going to the bridge and enacting his plan. The way the two of them adapt when they're on the bridge. It's all about that adaptability. And I really love that this isn't an examination of his character growth. This isn't an examination of his character so much of his character growth. This is, he has grown and now we're showing you that he has grown. In other words, rather than what Voyager often does, which a character changes and then it's reset, this is showing that that change has had long-term repercussions, that the Doctor is now the Doctor, rather than just, you know, hitting the reset button like we did at the end of real life. I'm never letting it go. Um, another fun fact, the Doctor made a no-harm comment uh, about the Romulans, and I, I really feel like he actually meant that. It's also interesting because the Mark II is more than willing to just kind of let the Romulan, you know, die or whatever. I find that very interesting because arguably the second thing that defines the Doctor is the, the thing that the definitive article that is in his name, the Doctor. It's very similar in many ways to the Doctor and Doctor Who. No real intention there to have similarity between the two. But the idea being, he is, first and foremost, a healer. Do no harm, etc. So, I like that examination of his character and the fact that it is consistent as well. Blah, blah, blah. Then there's a line which I love. Because of its presentation, the line itself is could have been flat. It could have been like, Ugh, really? Because it feels like a tease line. But the way that Andy Dick performed it was perfect. You know, no, the Romulans have not joined our fight with the Dominion yet. And, and the Doctor's like, who's the Dominion? Now, he could have just said, it's a long story. Which would have felt like a tease. But instead he says, and he hesitates for a second. As he, re as, as he like, you could just see him like accessing his databanks. And he sees the, the breadth and depth of all the complexity that the Dominion War has been. Because, let's be honest, it was hugely complicated. And then he... Long story. You know, great presentation, and I really like that. So at first, I was irritated when the when the episode went back to Voyager. I really was. I was like, God damn it, I, I want to see more of the of the, the the Mark One and the Mark Two show. But they do two good things with going back to Voyager, both of which I'm gonna talk about now in brief. Number one, I love the the showcasing of the very human need to hope. You know what I'm talking about. There's a situation where something might go great, and you really want it to go that way. You really want things to work out, and you know they probably won't. So you tell yourself, nope, not going to get my hopes up. 
but you're human. So your hopes do get up. You may hide it, you may deny it, you may try to ignore it, but in your heart, your hopes are going, God, please, please. And I love the way they showcase that with with Janeway talking about, you know, I've, I've updated my, my letters that I haven't updated in, in forever because they haven't had hope in forever. They have had no, they've become so acclimated to being lost out here that finally the thought of actually being able to communicate back home is a big deal. And it's like, okay, maybe, you know, let's, let's go update my letters. And then Chakotay is like, ah, oh, you shouldn't do that. Janeway's like, you're right, I shouldn't. And then Chakotay looks at her for a second and says, you know, he's done it too. But I, the best way they show that is with Neelix. I know this sounds weird. It's a subtle thing, because at first it's like, ha Neelix's cooking is bad, and I think I've made my point of how much I hate that joke, but it's not that joke! Oh my god, the episode pulled, pulled the rug out from under me. They aren't making a joke about Neelix's cooking being bad. What they're showing is Neelix has tried something brand new for the first time ever. Earth cuisine, which he's brushing up on, because he's hopeful. And it's so wonderfully human. And it's so subtle in its presentation. It's not that he's a bad cook. He's cooking something he's never cooked before. And he's doing this and, and trying this and experimenting this because, because he has that hope. Because he has that honest feeling that this will succeed. And it's funny because he takes the other approach to it. Sometimes when we get hopeful about something we think is not going to happen, you know, like I said, we're like, no, no, I shouldn't get hopeful. Neelix takes the opposite approach, which is another very human thing, and we see the other side of it. It will work. It absolutely will work. I have absolute confidence that it will work. It's another form of denial, basically. It's the opposite form of denial. It's, it's denial by reassurance. Yes, it will succeed, absolutely, and I'm, and I'm going to prep myself for when it succeeds, you know positive thinking kind of a thing not 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 speaking ill of it it's very human and i love that and it's a great usage of neelix in this case i uh andy dick does a great job of this one scene where he's like he goes up to the jeffrey's tube and he's like trying to get in the jeffrey's tube and he's holding the things and he's very awkward because you can tell he's never done manual labor before basically so he doesn't know how to do it so he's like okay he's trying to figure out how to get into the jeffrey's tube and it's just not working, and the doctor takes the tube and says, go in face first. Oh, okay. Then he goes in, comes back out, gets the tubes. Great, great visual comedy there. But there's another interesting line there. Your journey begins here. The doctor says that sarcastically. I think that was meant a little more literally, though. Not intentionally. I don't think the doctor meant that intentionally. But it's an interesting line because the Mark II's journey does begin there. Think about it. This is the first time he's really done anything out of bounds. And he goes out and he gets stuck and he actually has an idea. He has an idea all on his own. No external prompting. No one programming it into him. No one telling him it. He just has this thought and he enacts it and it works. And it's great how it works. And so I just felt like sharing that. And again, it would have been nice to see some repercussions of the Mark II starting to adapt and grow as well. But whatever, as they say. Uh, there is an interesting, uh, right, so I mentioned, the, I'm sorry, I was actually going to go over this earlier, but I, in my notes, it's next here, because this is when it happens in the episode. They do a second thing with going back to Voyager, replacing the Doctor. Now, they admittedly only try a couple of times, but I like the fact that the, the point is made clear that making a new EMH is not easy. It's not even hard. It's practically impossible. I like that because it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's a great sense-making point because otherwise, why would it even be special? Why would it be new? You know, I mean, it, why would why 
why, are we, why have we ever been worried about losing the EMH when we could just make a new one on the fly, right? If we could just go to the holodeck and say, treat me, right? But we can't, can we? In fact, that's never been done before, and indeed will never be done since. Don't, don't pull up the technically on me. So I like the idea that it does not work that way. And it shouldn't, really. So that, that's all I wanted to make about that point. So then Bellana is passive-aggressive about seven. So I'm, I'm going to smack her again here. There we go. The Herosian. The Herosian talk about their network. And then seven shocks the Herosian. I like how Janeway doesn't even verbally berate her for that move. Because it was the right move. I, I, I hate myself for saying this, but tactically speaking, strategically speaking, diplomatically speaking, this was someone who was adamantly refusing any possibility of even communication. He was not even willing to begin diplomacy or trade or anything like that or cooperation. No, no, no. He was just like, screw you, screw you, screw you, screw you, screw you, screw you. Like, you could replace every one of his lines with screw you, and the intonation would be exactly the same. The overall approach of, of what he's saying would be exactly the same. So Seven sends a mild shock through the Wheelie to shock him, not kill him. And, okay, yeah, I'm okay with that because we need to stay in contact with this thing. Remember, there is a tactical component of this in addition to the hopeful human let's get home part. That's the fact that they want their doctor back. As I mentioned earlier, if they're lost without their doctor, they're screwed. So, yeah, right move there, and I actually applaud Seven for that. I love the Mark II's narration when he, uh, you know, he's like, they, they, that's kind of a running theme. He's like, oh, I did this and this and that and that. And then later on, both the Mark I and the Mark II both narrate and actually compliment each other in the narration. It's some good stuff. That's all I'm going to say. It's just good stuff. I also have a line here, which literally is just the word love with underline there, the bridge scenes. I, I can't analyze them. You know, I, I could, but ultimately it would just be po pointing out how awesome it is. It's awesome. I love all the bridge scenes. It's the two of them acting as in, in complete vacuum of knowledge on a bridge of a brand new ship. And it's, it's amazing. And that's all I really have to say about it. And then this episode has a coda. Now, Voyager... <sighs> tired. Voyager has a weird track record when it comes to codas. Some of them are face-palmingly bad and some of them are amazing. This is one of the amazing ones. Uh, the doctor comes back and he's like, oh, the Romulans and blah, blah, blah. And he doesn't tell the whole story there, which is good. We don't need to hear the whole story again. We, the audience, don't. So him retelling the whole story would be unnecessary. He will obviously tell them the whole story off camera. We saw the whole story. We don't need that recounting. But I like this because he does, he, he starts to enthuse about it. Of course he would. He just, he just completed the no-win scenario, right? He completed the Kobayashi Maru successfully. Congrats, man. But... Then he gets down to the very human element of, I talked with Starfleet Command. I talked with Starfleet. You're not alone. And Mulgrew's response... Actually, I want to give credit to Beltran, because if you watch it, the camera zooms in on Mulgrew, because she's the one with the line, but Beltran, his face, which has been very you know tense up to this point, literally just softens into a smile very naturally. So great acting on his part. I want to give him credit for that. But... It zooms in on Mulgrew, and she just says, and you can tell that she's, like, fighting off tears when she says it. 60,000 light years today doesn't seem quite as far away. You know, that it's a great line, which I think I'm missaying. It's a great scene. Love it. And, again, the beginning of the second chapter of Voyager, effectively, as far as the undercurrent theme and plot of it, which I like. So, we'll go ahead and move on to the next episode, for me. 
obviously you'll be seeing it next week. So I'll see you next week, guys. I... I did it. You completed the mission. Yes. Once the Romulans were out of the way. Romulans? They'd taken over the Prometheus, the ship I was on. But I managed to turn the tables on them with a little help from a fellow EMH. You got through to Starfleet. I spoke directly with headquarters. Apparently Voyager was declared officially lost 14 months ago. I set the record straight. I told them everything that's happened to this crew. They said they would contact your families to tell them the news and promised that they won't stop until they found a way to get Voyager back home. And they asked me to relay a message. They wanted you to know you're no longer alone. Sixty thousand light years. Seems a little closer today. <laughs>